G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. I just want to show you that whatever the Christians were looking for, they found because it sustained them through difficult times. Hello and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today, Pastor Jeff talks about all things new as he brings us the last message in his series from Revelation. We'll hear about the symbols given to us in chapter 21 that help us understand what's in store when the Lord returns to reclaim and restore His kingdom. You need some kind of a hope to have character and integrity and patience and persistence and resilience to be able to make it through some of the things this world throws at us. You've got to have some hope. But here's the thing. It cannot be a subjective hope. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. And as you do, uh, multitask here for me. I want you to repeat something after me. And it's going to be hard for some of you. Uh, I want you to repeat the words, I am getting old. Okay? One, two, three. I am getting old. One more time. I am getting old. You're getting old. Even if you're 14 or 15 years old, your birthdays aren't going backwards. They're going forward. And uh, no matter how young you feel, the reality is we're all aging. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's just the way the universe is going. You're not only getting old, but the universe is getting old. And you're running out of steam, but so is the planet on which you live. And uh, I've been going to a physical therapist to try to heal my broken arm, you know. And uh, I just got to tell you, man, she's brutal. Uh, This is pain now. I thought I had been, I think my wife is right now. I am a big baby because... I, be, I almost cry when I go. And she lays me on that table and, and she starts running her elbow down my arm and she'll, she'll say, where does it hurt? And when she finds the place it hurts, she grinds right there. And she'll say something like, well, we've got to loosen up the scar tissue. If you want to be playing golf in a few weeks, Jeff, you can't just baby it. And I'm telling you, man, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I, I want to slap her. Uh, I, have never, I have never paid someone to hurt me like this. And, you know, she'll say, does that hurt? And I'll say, yeah. And she goes, good. And she'll grind it even harder. And I'm, I'm doing this, and I think I'm going to pass out. You know, maybe my wife's right. Maybe I'm just a big baby. But it is something that she says along the way. She'll say, she'll say Jeff, I'm telling you, if, and I've heard this uh, uh, often. She'll say, hey, use it or lose it. And I didn't want to get in a theological conversation with her. And I know it's true. If you don't use it, you'll lose it. Atrophy set up in my arm in just a couple of weeks. And it looked like I was losing it. Now I'm getting some of the muscle tone back. I never really had much to begin with. But whatever I had, I'm getting back. And uh, I started thinking. And I didn't respond. But I thought, you know what? Even if I do use it, I'm still going to lose it. It may be later. But I'm still going to lose it. Sooner or later, I'm going to lose this battle. And atrophy will set in. And it sets in on all of us. Now, the world in which we live doesn't like to talk about this. In fact, when I start conversations about this, I usually get one of three responses. The first response I get is someone who basically is in denial. They don't want to talk about death. (laughs) They don't want to hear it. You start the conversation with them. They'd just rather move on. And uh, usually they're... Their motto of life is, after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happened, they say nothing. And the point 
for them is that since we can't know for certain anything about what happens after we die, there's no use really talking about it anyway. It's all feeling anyway and emotion. Okay, then interesting about that first group, they have that attitude until they lose somebody that's close to them. And then all of a sudden they start talking about it and considering it. Second is the group that has a hope, but it's subjective. It's based on feeling and emotions. And they'll use general phrases. They'll talk in generalizations like, well, we all know he's in a better place. We all know there's peace. I'm sure there's hundreds of funerals that happen in this place where people will stand up and say, having known no objective point of reference. They'll say something like, well, we all know he's in a better place or she's in a better place or there's peace now. And uh, I remember this happening when I was in New Zealand uh, going to a funeral of one of our young basketball players. And the, the headmaster of the school who had a reputation of being a rank atheist. In fact, most of the staff at this school were just rank atheists. Didn't, didn't have anything to do with religion and hated Christians, just despised Christianity. And yet when this young boy died, he was giving the eulogy. And the first thing out of his mouth was, we all know he's in a better place and he's at a place of peace. And I'm thinking, dude, come on, man, at least be consistent. Have some coherency in your worldview. If there's no God, there's no better place. There's no peace. And if there is peace, it's because you're dead unconscious. You, if you're, if you, it is peace or, or you are peaceful, you don't feel that you're peaceful because you're not existing. So the reality is everybody deals with it different ways, right? So you've got the first person who's denial, second person who, okay, I've got this hope, but it's totally subjective. Yeah, pie in the sky, by and by, but I really don't have any objective point of reference to suggest that what I believe is actually true. Then there's the third group. There's the third group that has an objective hope. Uh, they hope that something good's going to turn out after all of this decay. That there is a new world, there is a new life, there is life after death, and the soul lives forever, and it's in peace and harmony and love, and everything you've ever wanted becomes a reality. And for that group of people, you know what we call them? Seriously, it's the only group on planet Earth that has an objective hope. They're called Christians. They talk about hope, but they give you an objective point of reference. For the early Christians, the reason their lives were changed to the degree that they were changed was because they knew you couldn't just have a subjective hope, pie in the sky, by and by. You had to, you had to base it on some point of reference. And what was it for them? It was the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, well, you know, that's a big question. There are messages on that. Uh, Gary Habermas has written a great book on the historical proof of the resurrection. I can't go down that road now. I just want to show you that whatever the Christians were looking for, they found because it sustained them through difficult times. Now, let's say it like this. I want you to repeat this after me on all campuses. The way you handle the present is based on how you see the future. All right, here we go. One, two, three. The way you handle the present is based on how you see your future. Let's do it again on all campuses. The way you handle the present is based on how you see your future. Man, that is so true. What you have determined in your own mind, what's going to happen in the future, will greatly impact how you live and how you respond to things in the present. Let's give you an example that I gave you a few months ago. Stay with me. I think when we get through this Revelation 21, it's really going to come out and you're going to be encouraged. But uh, I, I use the example of two people getting a job. They're both interviewed by a company. They both end up getting the job. But one, one is promised that at the end of the year, they'll, pay, they'll be paid 20000 And the other guy's promised at the end of the year, he'll be paid $2 million. Now the job stinks. It's 80 hours a week. It's boring. There's no vacation time. You're working with difficult people. Your boss is a control freak. It's a culture of fear and intimidation. Now, after that kind of a culture, what happens to the guy after three weeks who's going to get 20,000 at the end of the year? What does he do? He becomes divisive. He's complaining. He's exhausted. But what about the guy who's going to get paid 2 million at the end of the year? What's he say? 
Dude, this is a breeze. This is all I got to put up with for 12 months and I get 2 million bucks. You see, what you believe about the future greatly impacts what you think about the present. And the reality is everybody needs a hope. Nobody's immune to that. You need some kind of a hope to have character and integrity and patience and persistence and resilience. To be able to make it through some of the things this world throws at us, you got to have some hope. But here's the thing. It cannot be a subjective hope. It can't be a hope that says pie in the sky, by and by. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but maybe we'll all get lucky and go live on this planet. Uh, you know, you got to have some kind of objective point of reference. Now, I don't know if you remember... Christopher Reeve, before his accident, I'm sure most of you remember he starred in all the Superman movies. You know, if you know his story, incredible story of, of giftedness, of talent, a fantastic actor, but in his day was considered to be, you know, the best looking man on planet Earth, all that stuff. And then, of course, he has his accident, his horse riding accident, and ends up in a wheelchair. In 1998, they did a Super Bowl commercial, and through... Uh, just trick photography and through some of the things they can now do on computer animation, they made Christopher Reeves appear to walk. Okay? And he got a lot of flack for that, but his defense was basically this. He said, the only way that I could go on in the present is if I'm certain that one day in the future I will walk again. The only way that I could go on in the present is if I'm sure that at some time in the future I could be certain that I would walk again. The point is, the early Christians in John's day, the ones he's writing to, suffered enormously. You and I have no idea what they went through, and yet they really believed they would not only walk again, they would live again. And that objective reality enabled them to do some things that historically we know are true, are undeniable. For instance, they sang and prayed for the people who were killing them. They sang and they prayed for the people who were killing them. When the plagues came and everyone else fled the contagion, guess what the Christians did? They remained behind and they took care of the sick and the dying and the disease because they believe that he who believes in Christ, though he may die, yet shall he live. Now don't get me wrong, they wept, but not without hope, and they mourned, but not without faith. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and you're hearing about all things new from Revelation chapter 21. Let's continue now with Pastor Jeff. Now, here's the question. What is it that gave them such clarity on this? I mean, what happened to them that suddenly they thought, we can die at peace. We'll actually pray for those who are killing us. We'll stay behind and take care of those who are sick and dying. We'll rescue the perishing. We will care for the dying because... Death is just the doorway into the life we've always wanted. Think about this. They're people, but they're no different than you and me. You're going to have to have something of substance to believe that. Otherwise, you're going to know you're just kidding yourselves. And even Paul said, if there's no resurrection, we're a pitiful people. I mean, we are pitiful. We do all these things and we believe all these things, but it's all going to come to nothing. But for them, there was an objective point of reference. Let me walk you through some of the things. Sure, in Revelation 21, for instance, starting with verse 2, there are some signs and symbols and metaphors that would have encouraged them, but it wouldn't have done the trick. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. I'm in chapter 21, verse 2. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now look at this imagery. Don't you love the book of Revelation? So we have a city wearing a dress. Don't you love this? But it's powerful imagery, man. The imagery is takes me back, rather, to my wedding day. You guys, remember what you saw when you saw your wife walking down the aisle in the wedding dress? 
I mean, nothing could prepare you for that. You thought you were ready. You said, man, I'm glad this day's here. But something happens. When you see this beautiful woman walking down the aisle, the first thing that happens is, why is this woman marrying me? That's what all men think. Why is this woman marrying me? This is the most gorgeous. This is the most beautiful. This is unbelievable. Okay? And even though you prepare for it, and even though you know the wedding's coming, and when it comes, you say to yourself, man, it's about time it's here. You still are not totally prepared for what's about to happen. Same thing with my, uh, my son Delaney. He was married just about a week ago. Same thing happened to him. I could tell by the look on his face. He's thinking, okay, this day's finally here. We know, we, we've known it's going to be here for a long time. But yet, when he sees, when you catch the first look of the bride, wow, it's like, man, this is not what I, this is far beyond my hopes and wildest dreams. The Bible's trying to tell you that's what heaven's going to be like. Nobody knows exactly what it's like, but when you see it, you're going to say, you know what? I've had this sense of beyond in me for all of my life. I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to come, but I didn't expect this. This is far beyond what I could ever hope for, dream, or imagine. And then notice the measurements of the city. Notice the measurements. John says, I'm taken up on the spirit to a great mountain. God shows me the city, Jerusalem. It shines with the glory of God. It's got brilliance like jasper and precious jewels and clear as crystal. And then he says, it has this. It has 12 gates. It has 12 angels at the gates. The wall of the city has 12 foundations. Come on, how could you have 12? I mean, a city has foundations. I mean, it's one. You only need one. No, but this city, 12 foundations. It was 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide, 12,000 stadia high. And the wall around it, by the way, was 144 cubits thick. Are you suspicious yet? Do you notice that everything's multiples of 12? Why? Because the number 12 in apocalyptic literature in the Bible it stands for the people of God. 12 disciples, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. These aren't the exact measurements of the city. The point is this city is made for the people of God. It's conducive to the people of God. It's in celebration of the people of God. And there's no aspect anywhere in the deepest corner of the city that is outside the realm of the people of God. It's like when my wife says to me, Jeff, let's go house hunting. Let's go find a place to live. What does she really mean, guys? She really means you sit there, drive, and keep your mouth shut, and I'll tell you what house is right for us. <laughs> right? If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Okay? And then I, I ride around, and she tells me she's looking for the perfect house. She's looking for the kitchen size and the living room and the flow and all that stuff. That we men just want a house. Just give us a house. The point of this passage in the beginning for the people of God is that God's been looking for that special place where you would feel secure, where you would be at peace, where you would have acceptance, where there'd be no in-laws, where, no, I'm just kidding about that. <laughs> but the reality is no eyes seen, no ears heard. The point is the language all through, it just keeps hammering it again and again. It's not that hard. It's perfect because God built it. He knows what is actually conducive to the people of God and the harmony and the peace and justice and all those things. But that wasn't the real clincher. The real clincher was what happened in Revelation 21. Some of you have heard me talk about this before, but let me talk about it one more time. Because usually it takes three or four times before it starts to sink in. And chances that most of you missed it the last time, since most of us come to church once a month, is are high. So it might be new to you. But when the Apostle John started to write these words, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. 
And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now you get the imagery? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Man, this, when this passage, the illumination at one point in my life, when I started to see what was going on here, it changed everything because, again, I said that some of us, come to Christ, for me, it was important that the, the, the Christian way of life, the Christian worldview was coherent. Because as I began to look at other world faiths and other world systems, there's such a level of incoherency that you, they're just hard to embrace. But Christ is incredibly consistent in his origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. There's a sense of coherency there. And it continues to go through scripture. And you start to learn that heaven is not some, some ethereal experience out there with disembodied spirits floating around in the never-never land. And when I hear preachers talk about that, man, I just can't, I'm sorry, I can't do that. That's just way too non, it's too fantastical. It's too hard to grasp. But then you start reading the Bible. There are two words for new. Two words for new. The word is kainos, which is a word that means refurbished. There's neos, which means brand new. Never having existed before, it is new. But kainos doesn't mean that at all. It means new in time. It means to take an old piece of furniture that already exists and to refurbish and to renovate and make it brand new. Okay? The word used every time. Not just once, but every time in Revelation, when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, is the word not for totally brand new, but for renewed, refurbished, remade. And that's why you hear me say that, according to Revelation, we're called up into the air to meet him. And as the great white throne judgment and the bema seat of Christ occur, it's like God puts a big ribbon around planet earth that says closed for renovation. And after we're given our new bodies, then we return to the new heavens and the new earth. Heaven, by the way, is the Greek word uranos. It just means atmosphere. So there's going to be a new atmosphere, new planets, renewed solar system. But all the center and all the attention is on planet earth. This place that God made will be renewed, restored. The best analogy I can give you, remember we've said that every story you read in human history really points to the ultimate story. I mean, think about it, Superman. You know, he comes from another world, saves the people, gives his life for them. Every story you read points to the ultimate story. Now, consider a moment the story of Robin Hood. What is the story of Robin Hood? Well, King Richard is away fighting for the peace and safety of his people. And while he's away, there's an evil Prince John, uh, Richard's brother that usurps the power of the throne. He's abusive, he's oppressive. And so the band of people that are loyal to the real king, they're small, they start shouting to everybody else, hey, this dude is not the real king. He's oppressive. But one day King Richard's going to come back. But nobody listens to them, or few, and so they have to hide out in the forest, right? And then they try to relieve, even though they're in the forest, they still care for the people who've been deceived. And so they take from the rich and give to the poor, right? They're still trying to get them out from under the shackles of the erroneous uh, governmental system. They're fringe people. They're seen as aliens, Robin Hood and his merry men. They live away from their real homes and their real comforts and their real identity because they know one, thing, one day things are going to change. And then near the end, King Richard sends them a message to encourage them. And he says, don't worry, guys. I've heard what's happening. I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you out of here to another place. And we're going to live in harmony and peace together. Is that how the king relates and communicates? Is that the end of the story of Robin Hood? 
No. The end of the story of Robin Hood is this. King Richard says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to reclaim what's rightfully mine. I'm going to cast out the enemies. They're the ones that's going to be going away. We're staying and there's going to be a new kingdom, same geographical location, but we're going to be renewed, refurbished, and the old order have passed away. The Christian story is not that God comes and takes us into some never-never land. The early Christians in their creeds did not believe that when they died, they were going somewhere. Now, they did believe that when you died, you were absent from the body, present with the Lord. But they believed the final heaven to be right here and right now. That God, the king, comes back to claim what is rightfully his. The Christian story is not one of some kind of great escape, getting off this dirty planet and going somewhere that's good. The Christian story is that God comes back and claims what is his. This is Today with Jeff Vines, and we're halfway through Pastor Jeff's message called All Things New. Please join us next time to hear the last word from Pastor Jeff's series from Revelation. We humble ourselves because we are not our own, and we have been bought with a price. And God has the right to use us any way He chooses. You can catch up on some of the other messages from the last book of the Bible by heading to our website, vision.org.au, and search for Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines, just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.